you know what I was just thinking? Yes. Do you know what hell is? Is it uh, having to talk about Fantastic Four issues 126 through 133 again? Because if so, yes, I would say yes. <laughs> That's literally what I was thinking. It's when you have to do something that you didn't... And I mean, this is no offense to you, but you didn't enjoy doing the first time because you didn't like the comics. Yeah. And then you have to do it again. So what we're saying, listeners, is thanks for tuning in. <laughs> You're in for a treat. You uh, really are. Okay, I'm going to do the introduction. You ready? Yes. Music! Hello, Whatnuts. Welcome to the second version of Baxter Building Episode 16. I am one of your hosts, Greg McMillan, and your other host is on the other end of this line. Let's say hi, shall we? Yes. Hello, everyone. It's Jeff Lester, who, believe me, missed his cues in Baxter Building 16.1, but now as the Earth 2 Jeff Lester, who's recording the Earth 2 version of Baxter Building. Oh, God, Graham, how are we going to get through this? <laughs> just... Hey, if you're an Earth 2 Jeff Lester, then either TV Flash, you're probably utterly fucking evil or uh comics flash you you fought in world war ii you should have a sit down jeff yes i should uh, however the problem is is since we haven't even gotten to the fantastic four issues concerning counter earth i can't even talk about how i am the brute version of jeff lester which uh, i forget entirely what that means because weirdly <laughs> it's like i'm purple and i smell like really, cologne really, really... Yeah, yeah exactly. Splash had a really bad cologne. See, I'm so glad you also went there. Uh, listeners, oh, we're going uh, to be talking about issues 126 through 133, and it's going to be interesting to see if we can do so uh, in a way that is not unnecessarily truncated due to the horrible events last week that prevented well, us we from should delivering an episode. So, in case you didn't see the thing on the podcast or listen to the fill-in episode, there were technical issues, which meant that we really did do a whole episode uh, that an entire episode did not exist. Um, and it's not a spoiler to say that we didn't really particularly like these issues. Yeah. Uh, and so... Hooray! Now we're doing them again. However, yes. we are doing them differently. And and we put this in place last time, and we're going to do it again this time, because there's no way that was a jinx, right? Yes. I'm, I'm totally knocking on wood after I say that. Um, instead of doing the issue issue by issue as we used to do, we're now essentially going to bundle the storylines together. Yeah. Uh, so that, for example... Whereas last time we do, it's issue 126, and 126 is the way it began, and 127 is uh, where the sun does not shine, and now we're doing 128, and 128 is death in a dark and lonely place. I'm not making any of those titles up, by the way, those are the real titles. Um, we will now go, like, it's 126, and now the storyline between 127 and 128 is where the sun doesn't shine, and death in a dark and lonely place. And we'll talk about the issues... In terms of the story, as opposed to in this issue, this happens. In this issue, this happens. In this issue, this happens. Yeah. Uh, we're doing that more or less for our sanity. Yes. Uh, because as things go on, and we've really hit the point now where continued storylines are less of the Lee Kirby, every issue is a complete piece of a larger whole. 
these aren't complete pieces anymore. Yeah. Like the storylines get weirdly amorphous and it just seems better to do them in, in storylines as opposed to issues. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, <clears throat> also, I think there's something really important to be said that, you know, now that we have moved on from 126, barring uh, the Archie Goodwin episodes, are the is the first real Stanley is gone. He is going to stay gone. And part of what this means is that uh, in a way we're getting to the Fantastic Four as cover band um, years. And honestly, the thing that I think for me that I really uh, am sorry about uh, uh, losing the last episode apart from, you know, just the actual damn (laughs) loss of it uh, is the fact that although Graham and I talk about it, it's like we really didn't like these issues very much. There was a lot that in the course of talking about it and prepping for it, I think I at least was able to find a spot where there's a lot of things that I ended up appreciating about some of these issues. And, and some of it is, is that, you know, um, Roy Thomas comes in at 126. He's Mr. Fanboy. uh, And, uh, but there are ways in which there's all Roy Thomas is such a huge, crucial link to the Fantastic Four, to, to the Marvel comics that I read as a kid. And one of the things that was really fun that hopefully we can talk about as they come up again, we're coming up on, again, in this weird thing, despite the fact that Graham and I are not the same age, we'll be coming up against some of the issues that we more or less encountered, uh, the first Fantastic Four issues that we ever encountered um, in this run. Uh, and that's it's kind of amazing, because in a way, even though you do not have the absolute genius of Jack Kirby at the helm or even the very gifted ability of synthesis uh, that, that I think Stan Lee brought to the equation, you do have um, a very... the This is where the Bronze Age of Marvel Comics, in a way, really began, and that is that is very much my jam you know it's impossible well, for two guys like Graham and I who are incredible fans of Steve Inglehart it's I think it's really hard to imagine Inglehart without Roy Thomas even more than Stan Lee you know no I I, I completely agree but also what I was going to say is because we're heading into the era where you know you read did you read actually these issues or did you read reprints because I definitely read them when they were reprinted in Britain yes you did but you were kind of at the same age that I did when I read the original issues and but because of that these issues feel even though they are objectively worse mm-hmm. they feel very uh pure fantastic four yes you yeah. know so so spoilers everyone uh the Human Torch is going to get a new costume in, in the issues we're talking about in, in this run. And that new costume, which really doesn't stick around for very long at all, no. really resonated, at least with me and I think with you as well, mm-hmm. because it's around in the issues we first read. Mm-hmm. And it gets this entirely unearned moment of gratitude as a result. Yes. Yes. Because of the there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we'll get to that. But of course, and it, it, in that sense... There is a point where, and and I don't really know I, if this transition point is really going to nurture the, the podcast to come or hinder it. But in that sense, as we move beyond Stanley and Kirby, we start moving into something entirely different, which is the very strange 
Ouroboros-like experience of us appreciating the Human Torch's red outfit, which is all the more ironic because it is Roy Thomas reintroducing the Human Torch's red costume from the original Human Torch from when Roy Thomas was a youth. And somehow there it begins that strange, um, you know, uh, mise-en-abysme uh, kind of experience that 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 is sort of modern comics in a way. So, well, it's funny that we're talking about this because the first issue is quasi a standalone. Yes, for uh, that for one twenty six, the way it began! Exclamation point! <laughs> what you did miss last time we did this is my obsession with the fact that all of Roy Thomas's titles have an exclamation point. <laughs> Uh, which it still to this time amuses me. Also, with this issue, we have sadly done away with the old masthead that changes every issue and introduces, you know, the fabulous FF are dealing with title. Uh, from now on, it just says the Fantastic Four. And very soon it'll say Stanley presents the Fantastic Four. But of course, there's the Fantastic Four because there's an exclamation point there as well. <laughs> People who like exclamation points, this is your jam. And that's good because this issue which pretty much is uh, right, Thomas, taking the Stanley cover band thing very literally is just retelling the origin story of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yes, and and I think it is. Uh, so I don't I don't really necessarily know. One thing that I should also point out uh, that I really maybe I should not because Graham mentioned it in the mini cast is this issue uh, issue 126 the way it began was strangely deja vuish for me in a way that I couldn't place uh, because as a kid I had there were a series of power records that were 45s that were released with an edited version of an actual Marvel comic book and they did them with a couple of DCs and some other licensed material but the thing that's amazing is they're they're almost literal voice acting recreations of a comic book itself with no additional explanation which is more or less fine when you've got the comic book going with the 45 but power records also would re- release those 45s as a 33 with several different stories but no comic book. So if you can imagine the reading the way it began, but without any ability to see the what was happening in the panels themselves, you have the experience of what it was like for me as a kid to actually experience this issue in the way that I can absolutely guarantee you it was never meant to be experienced. So <laughs> it's it's a bad comic. I mean it's Fine in that it retells the origin of Fantastic Four. Sure, who doesn't like that? Right. But before he gets there, we have the what used to be the everyone is a family and they bicker, but they all love each other scene. Mm-hmm. But it is now significantly extended. I mean, it lasts what eight pages, nine pages, uh, eight pages. Yeah, exactly. It it, it actually uh, takes about and, eight pages. And uh, and it's everyone's mean. Yeah. Everyone has just become a dick, and they all actively dislike each other now. Yes, and that's not fun. Yeah, well, there, there's a couple of things I feel going on there, and one of them is is that you know, well, particularly Roy Thomas is no Stan Lee, but I think it says a lot that uh, you know, uh, one thing that became really apparent as we moved through the Baxter Building is how much you know. Jack Kirby was driving the bus and he always was very keyed into the FF being family 
and I think also was into the idea of them being good people who are good to each other. And so you got the you've got the the hyper you've got Kirby's action that Lee would hype into a state of uh, melodramatic fervor, but actually Kirby himself as the guy plotting the stories would would frequently utter, undercut that by changing to a very quick humorous beat. But looking at the first few pages of this, one of the things that strikes me is the way in which I think Thomas had meant for a very good-natured, you know, here's Johnny calling Ben, you know, turns around and says, if Alicia's got half the smarts I think she does, you know, she'll be the one who do the waiting, like, for about a 100 years. It, and then ends up shooting um, Ben's cigar out of his hands. In other words, something that should be relatively goofy, both of them seem murderously intent. Uh, yeah, they both seem amazingly angry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's true. In in um, and then they actually go on to fight. Yes, like actually, the thing tries to punch him. Yes, which... and, and and Johnny tr- thing tries to punch Ben, like not even flamed on in a way that is just kind of like it's it, it 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 it's mean, but it's also just kind of weirdly reckless. Like it's like that's not. That's not the sort of lovable horseplay that we're used to, you know? And and yeah. part of me can't help but feel that, that John Basima, bless his heart, is can you know, can draw like nobody's business, but does just does not really understand the di- the underlying dynamics. And so consequently I think this issue which does introduce a number of very important subplots about um Members the of the team, of the yeah, team. the personal yeah. dynamic of the team becoming strained and 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 uh, certain relationships taking their toll. Uh, I think what's meant to be kind of an undercurrent that's supposed to build ends up pretty much starting at eleven, you know, and only getting more uh, amped up from there, which makes it a, a very uh, uncomfortable kind of experience. I think it. it... Is a very strange issue for that. Mm-hmm. You you just get a very, and Stan was actually ramping this up as well in his his last few issues. Yes, that the the team's disharmony went from, you know, it's my brother, but I love him. To I am actually going to cause him trouble. Like, yeah, I'm I'm going to hurt that guy because he's pissing me off. And Thomas just ramps that up even more, and undoes. A lot of the interpersonal relationships, the basics. So you get Sue, in this issue at least, berating Reeds, but in a reasonably loving manner. That's mm-hmm. that's going to significantly change as soon as the next issue. But you get Johnny and Ben seeming much more aggressively against each other. And you also get Alicia walking away from Ben when he says something thoughtless, mm-hmm. which seems as out of character as anything else. The fact that Alicia walks away because uh, Ben says something thoughtless is the, the lead into Ben then tries on Reed's thought projector helmet and thinks of the origin of the team and that's, that's the framing sequence for the flashback. The flashback is very interesting ways that it changes what came before. Mm-hmm. As much as Thomas loves his old comics and loves revisiting them, he doesn't do so he leaves his footprint. Mm-hmm. He leaves his footprint in, in the ways in which things go differently. Part of it is, John Buscema and Joe Sinnott 
draw the characters differently to the point where uh, Thomas has to say that in the dialogue. I ain't really seeing exactly what happened. Just what I remember is happening. That's what everybody looks, acts, talks like they do today. Yeah. He has to say. Because they all of a sudden do look like today's Fantastic Four. Yeah. But they act differently as well. And there's, there's elements in there that were not in the original. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. In fact, one of those great lost moments is uh, from our previous podcast was there's a point where when Ben is saying that he he doesn't want to that they're crazy to go on this flight and that, the you know, there's no way the rocket's going to keep out cosmic rays. And Sue Sue says, like, do you want some foreign power to beat America to the moon? Ben Grimm in this version says, let him. It'll give us a head start cleaning up Harlem and Watts. And there's even literally a call out caption saying, huh, did I say that? You know, which is present Ben looking back on this flashback being like, did he? And Graham and I both were like, did he? And, we, you know, thanks to the miracle of, of the computers, we were able to look it up and be like, that is a very no, strange no, addition. And the fact that Thomas underlines it. You know, in a way, I think one of the things that's interesting here is is that, that what is frustrating to me is is that, as you said, it's not a good comic, but in a way for me, there's ways in which it is very impeccably structured. I, I can't help still but admire the fact that this issue, which is a, a good quote-unquote jumping on point because you get the origin of the team, you get your new reader, uh, your new writer in place, and he sets up where he's going to go. He even uses the flashbacks as an excuse to talk about because in the first issue they fought the Mole Man, and then he cuts to the most recent time they fought the Mole Man in which he made them all blind and then took away their blindness, and Ben decides, like, hey... I'm going to go to the Mole Man and make him give get Alicia's sight back so that she can have her, her vision. Like, it's all relatively compressed. It serves a number of purposes. And interestingly enough, unlike later times where the Fantastic Four's origin is is like retold and upgraded at the same time, Thomas actually gets to have the ambiguity. He literally hangs a lantern on the fact that he is sort of having his cake and eating it too. He's literally saying this origin is different because it's the way that we remember it. And so therefore he gets to make the, he gets to make imaginary retcons and whether or not those retcons stick for the reader or not, Thomas kind of gets to have it both ways. I, I really do admire that. There's a lot that I admire in the abstract, in the sort of formalist way about Thomas, even as I find this being like, ugh, ugh, oh, it's, you know. it's a, it really is a struggle to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it genuinely is. So let, let's, you've pretty much said all the important things about this. The one thing I'd add is we talked about the original Human Torch before, mm -hmm. and Thomas calls that out in this issue. Oh, yeah. So that when right. Johnny flames on for the first time, mm -hmm. he says, I'm like that old time comic book hero, the Human Torch. Oh. Which, again, he never said. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, that, that's not in the original at all because the original Human Torch didn't exist in that world until Lee and Kirby decided to bring him in years later, like three or four years later. Yeah, in an annual, I think, right? Wasn't that, wasn't that yeah. what it ended up being? Yeah. So, so there is a little bit. And one of the things that is great is, weirdly enough, Thomas, again, Thomas, I think in his way, being 
somewhat close to the top of his game, at least as far as it went in 1972 or 73. Uh, He's not only sort of making that sort of shout out to his beloved characters of his youth that he, you know, that we expect from Roy Thomas, or at least those of us who have read a lot of Roy Thomas expect, but as Graham sort of, you know, perhaps inadvertently spoiled by mentioning it earlier in our introduction to these issues, it's also a setup that pays off later, which is, you know, again, kind of, I admire it in the abstract. It's just the actual, during the course of the execution, the execution is fine. It's just not the sort of thing that you say you necessarily want to read two or three times and then have to talk about twice. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a lot of that this episode. I'm sorry about that. The next storyline then sort of leads on from this. The first uh, 126 is kind of set up for it, but really standalone. It leads into, however, FF's 127 and 128, which, as I said before, really are called Where the Sun Dares Not Shine and Death in a Dark and Lonely Place. Yeah. Jeff, I think it's worth pointing out that the first issue is uh, is a euphemism for the butt. Yes. Isn't that great? I do love that. Again, the, where the sun dares not shine with the exclamation point and in that just hyperbolic sort of deal. It's, you know, it, at some point it's so funny because, like, I, I'm impressed how much we've been talking without bringing in the topic of Roy Thomas's fragile masculinity, which which will <laughs> well, be coming I, up I, is sort of I the was anchor. With, I was waiting for this, ep- this issue, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, ladies and gentlemen... If you thought, I want to read some comics from 1971 in which women's lib is literally terrifying to the author. Yeah. Let us introduce to you the work of Roy Thomas on Fantastic Four. Are you scared of women? (laughs) Think that women getting, for example, equal rights might be the downfall of civilization? (laughs) Roy Thomas in 1971. Would like to agree with you. You know, I need uh, to write some comics about that. Okay, first off, I really do want to say I believe this is still 1972, and uh, oh, it is. Oh, it is. And I, okay, yeah, 1971. He was still thinking it, Jeff. Well, I was about to say, 1971, he was writing the Avengers, where it really was coming through loud, loud and clear. But, but I do. I think that I think one of the things that is underlined is. There are things going on in this uh, in this set of issues where Graham and I literally ended up going to uh, online onto the internet to try and find out when Roy Thomas's first marriage ended because it it <laughs> the ways in which the so uh, essentially for those who need the the quick you know uh, nickel tour. Um, the thing more or less uh, goes back to the weird old crazy house where the mole man like dove down an anti-gravity tube back to his subterranean kingdom. And Ben decides like, fuck it. I'm just going to climb down there like, you know, bit by bit. We get to Johnny who shows up in the Baxter building to get harangued by the J. Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson character that has yet to disappear realizes that Ben is gone, that there's a problem, calls Reed and Sue and gets them to come join him so that they can go back and get Ben uh, and and save him. Uh, Meanwhile, Ben in the kingdom of the Mole Men uh, ends up coming across a woman being attacked by a kind of gross um, 
I don't it's know. It's kind of a, a lizard snake. Lizard thing. worm snake thing, I guess. He does his clobbering time thing, ends up being taken in by the uh, beautiful queen. Uh, what's her name? Kala. 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 I, can, I screwed it up last time. Who is betrothed to the mole man. And uh, I have to say that there's some very lovely art here. You know, Thomas, who's worked with Basimo before, at least knows the kind of thing that Basimo likes to draw, which is basically queenly women on, you know, being carried about on cushions, being carried through a subterranean kingdom by the retinue. It's just the right touch of, uh, you know, Bern Hogarth meets Edgar Rice Burroughs that, that is is going to keep Basima happy. So there's some very lovely delineation. And uh, that brings us back to Reed and Sue and Johnny showing up outside the wrecked house uh, and themselves getting ready to fly down the tube down to the mole man's kingdom to they think rescue ben however unfortunately we see that reed and sue uh their relationship is under a strain wouldn't you say graham and that strain would the be the relationship called... is suddenly under a strain and that strain is that sue has finally decided to stand up to reed being the misogynistic dick that he's been for the last 126 issues. Yes. And although this should be a moment by which Graham and I certainly should have been relieved and celebrating one of the things that is totally terrifying. And again, which is what made us wondering exactly what the hell was going on with Roy Thomas's first marriage is how Sue in this issue and in several issues to come, despite being absolutely 100% correct about the sexist way in which he's being treated, treated by Reed and the way that he is being absolutely cold and insensitive, not just to her, but to their own child, again, in ways that are 100% justified, nonetheless comes across as a shrill Heridian, a, a completely terrifying, shrewish nightmare of a person. Uh, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's genuinely impressive that Sue is 100% right. Yes. And yet is portrayed, not just in terms of the text, but in the art as well, yeah. as being 100% wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Sue, is, Sue is specifically uh, complaining that Reed continually says, Honey, why don't you go and hide while the men do the real work? Mm -hmm. uh, or why don't you take care of our son? Because I would rather go and have adventures and then do experiments. Yeah. She's entirely right. Mm -hmm. But everyone pretty much treats her as being insane. Yeah. Especially Reed. Reed is astonishingly insensitive. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Roy Thomas is on Reed's side. And in 127, which is the first time that Sue really loses her, her cool. Mm -hmm. In the space of one page, she goes from almost like, you know, hitting her fist against something in, in frustration to just a couple of panels later saying, oh, Reed, dearest, whatever I said back there, whatever lies ahead, remember that I love you, that I've always loved you. So she literally comes across as unstable. Yeah, she really does. And of course, Reed, instead of saying I love you too, says, when I forget that, Mrs. Richards, I'd have also forgotten how to breathe. Which is, again, pure read, pure dickish read. But again, this is supposed to be a moment of reconciliation. And whether you're going to chalk it up to, eh, this is the way that the scene's drawn. And <coughs> Thomas only has so much time to sort of establish his beat and cover it up. 
uh, it nonetheless seems, um, yeah, it just seems, it what, just seems as here's if Sue's thing. unhinged, basically. You could think that. You could chalk it up to that if it wasn't for the fact that this continues for a few more issues. There is an upcoming plot, which is pretty much, there is a woman, she is strong, oh my god, I'm terrified. And in this very storyline, the second half of it, the big reveal is that Kala is not actually in love with the mole man, because how could she love someone so ugly? She's in it for herself. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of astonishing... You know what's scary? Women having minds of their own shit. In- <laughs> well, so yes. So let's let's spin very quickly through 128, by which I mean, essentially, 127 ends with the cliffhanger where the thing has been so brutalized and damaged and his vocal cords don't work. And also because he's stuck on the ma- mole man's magic web of plot convenience, he manages to escape from the the plot web, the plot convenient web but it has changed how other people see him such that he appears to be a rampaging monster of the under the mole man's uh, command and it hasn't it hasn't because thank god Roy Thomas has remembered that Reed Richards knows things that he shouldn't yes because he can see through this disguise because the monster moves like the thing does yes yeah which is that's, an that's amazing he can't, mm-hmm. he can't hear him he can't see him, but the day I don't recognize you or Ben Grimm is the day I apply for a seeing eye dog. <laughs> Reed, what the, what the fuck, Reed? What yeah, the what fuck, the fuck Reed? Uh, um, yep. Nonetheless, when they're reunited, they immediately split up again. Mm-hmm. Post a fight between Reed and Sue, because that's what Reed and Sue do now. Yep. They fight a bunch. She says, I'm a woman, Reed. That doesn't automatically make me Sue Barton's student nurse. I face danger as often as you have, Mister Fantastic. And again, she's absolutely right. It's she's just so right. horrible. Yeah, yeah. So yes, they split up um, with, I believe, Ben and Sue going one way, and Johnny and Reed going another. Kind of an odd pairing, but you know, and uh, well, but it kind of makes sense because obviously Reed and Sue aren't going to go off together. Well, no. uh, and also Reed seems to the the fight begins because Reed essentially is like, okay, Ben's not up for anything, so he's quite clearly sending the two of them off in a direction he thinks won't be trouble. Oh, that's actually a good point. Okay, thank you. Because I was like, whereas it seems to me that Reed and Ben, being best would friends, made, or, would yeah. go in one direction, and Sue and Johnny, being brother and sister, would have actually ended up going. But no, anyway, it's fine. What ends up happening is is that. Uh, Sue and Ben managed to stumble across the enormous dangling plot thread that Roy Thomas has left uh, unhandled, which is to say the Reverend Josiah Mandis tucked away in a cage inside a place that looks like a subterranean Hilton, according to Ben Grimm. And, uh, oh, I guess there's two plot threads because after he... Uh, ben breaks out the Reverend Mendez out of his uh, cage. He ends up feeling completely woozy and zonked worse than he thought uh, in a panel that comes to mean absolutely nothing as the rest of the story. Yes, exactly. You might think that's foreshadowing. It's not. And yeah. for that matter, the Reverend Mendez is also not foreshadowing. Yes, exactly. He, he disappears after the scene. But God knows what is actually happening in 128. Yes. 
I, I, I want to say that, of course, I will keep this down to a brief 30 seconds as opposed to what was probably about 35 minutes last time of me hypothesizing that the plot direction was is that uh, Man- Reverend Hosea Mandiz, particularly with his rather protuberant nose, was going to end up being the father of the Mole Man and we were going to get some sort of insight as to why he'd been kidnapped. But uh, no, no. Instead, but what ends up happening? to resurrect the Mole Mandiz. Mole Mandiz. Mm-hmm. So, right. so thanks. More mantas, more problems, Jeff. <laughs> that's an awful pun for this episode. Yeah, I was I about to say, I'm like, I'm... God, I didn't laugh at that last time because that's genius. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What is maybe not so genius is the way that uh, Reed and uh, Johnny uh, manage to uh, escape from death by virtue of... Uh, the Human Torch manifesting yet another power that has never been talked about uh, before and will never be talked about before again. Uh, his hypno flame, uh, Reed disguising himself as a subter- subterranean, and then being able to jump in, try and defeat the Mole Man, who himself has managed to defeat Tyrannus, who, of course, tried to, you know, overthrow. I don't know. It all gets kind of complex, but needless to say, it takes about three or four pages. And the big denouement in which Ben manages to uh, grab the Mole Man and uh, uh, insist that he cure Alicia's sight to be told that, of course, the Mole Man couldn't, otherwise he would have cured his own, is the sort of exact, even though it is the whole reason for the existence of these entire three issues uh, is resolved in literally two dashed off panels. So, you know, who says that Jack Kirby's plotting is dead, really, uh, when you get down to it? <laughs> exactly. Who says that the Death Force were going to have a deeply unsatisfying conclusions? <laughs> exactly. Roy Thomas really understands what we want from the Fantastic Four, and that is the feeling that a story has run out of room and it's time to wrap things up and maybe have something explode once or twice. So, maybe twice. So that brings us to the Fantastic Four, 129, and I believe, is it 130? 130. Yeah. Yep. Everything's a two-parter from now on. 129 is the Frightful Four plus one, exclamation point. Uh, and 130 is Battlegrounds, colon, the Baxter Building, exclamation point. Yeah. You'll be happy to know, as the title of 129 suggests, the Frightful Four are back. Jeff is very happy to know that because he fucking loves the Frightful oh, Four. Oh, God, Jesus. I actually, I actually do like the Frightful Four. I know you love the Frightful Four. And you know what? Honestly, it's not that I it's not that I didn't... Well, no, it's true. At the time, I didn't love them. What's amazing is how much more sense the Frightful Four make in the in the Roy Thomas Bronze Age Marvel Comics world where they're just basically a bunch of supervillainous schnooks. Uh, yes. You know. For some reason, when they become schlubs, yeah. they, they are, they're somehow better, right? Yeah, yeah, they really are. Once they've gone from being the absolute deadliest enemy that the Fantastic Four have ever faced and might never win against, to a bunch of self-defeating schnooks. There is something that is, I do think, in the in these two sort of dashed off issues that's kind of satisfying about the fact that the Frightful Four, once again, their deadliest enemy really is the Frightful Four. So uh, do you want to talk about the departure of the Human Torch, maybe, I think? I do, because it's on the cover. It says, extra, the Human Torch quits the FF. He does. Because he does something that Jeff suggested quite a few episodes ago, actually. Yeah. Uh, he decides that he's just going to go and live with Crystal. Mm-hmm. 
that makes sense. After pining for Crystal for the longest time, he finally like, oh, that's right. She might not be able to live here, but I can go and live with her. Everything's okay. Yeah. Except it's not. We are now in the Roy Thomas era, where anyone saying anything leads to a fight. Uh, you get the feeling Bangram could stand up one day and say, I'm going to have toast for breakfast, and there would be a fight. <laughs> Reed Richard would be like, man, stop it, man. Are you talking? You know that I transformed the toaster into negative zone components. <laughs> No, so, and then Sue would be like, why are you always doing that to my kitchen? I hate you. You don't think about me. And then Johnny would be like, hey, Bozo, I can make toast myself. I'm my butts. <laughs> I very much love your parody versions of the Fantastic Four done wrong because they're very satisfying and not very far off from what we get. I do think that... <laughs> I'm not wrong. That's the thing. One of the things that is frustrating is, is I feel that in some ways... Uh, Thomas, the Thomas who is who's writing the Fantastic Four issues here is is in a way a professional. And one of the things that he has discovered is there is a formula to doing these things. You provide your plot to your artist and to make it kind of bulletproof, you tend to open with a scene of action and then you, you know, you've got your middle sequence, then you get a middle action sequence, then some more exposition and then you jam it to some sort of big cliffhanger. The problem is, is that a formula is a formula and can come off formulaic. And uh, one of the things that's really impressive is when the Human Torch says, I'm going to go live with Crystal, Reed is basically like, no, you've got to think it through. Johnny's like, bullshit, flames on, flies through a bunch of walls. And Reed is like, Ben, the torch is running wild. We've got to catch him before he does something foolish. And Ben says, you mean like, go marry the chick he loves? You know, and there is something that is kind of Thomas, unfortunately, can't help sometimes. But in his in his uh, ability to have try to have it his own way, because he Thomas is a very smart guy. And one of the previous uh, the previous incarnations of this episode, uh, I actually listed off all the vocabulary words, the, the, the bits in different languages, the, the Shakespearean puns that come off. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Thomas is a very clever guy. In some cases, I think that it's, it's fair to say that he is actually better read, better educated uh, than, than I think Stanley himself is. The problem oh, is, oh, is that... Almost certainly. Almost certainly. And the problem, unfortunately, is, is that Thomas is, in some cases both a little too smart for his own good. And occasionally uh, this means that when something dumb happens that he knows is dumb, he can't help but hang a lantern on it. And he may think that what he's doing is kind of winking at the audience, you know, or again, the way someone hangs a lantern on it is to make sure the problems dismiss more quickly by saying, yes, I know, but it really does come off like a makes it accentuates that sort of hyper know-it-allness that uh, Thomas, I think, uh, that later becomes so much associated with Thomas, the, the, the comics creator. And here, again, you have situations where he sets up a formula and then points out how ridiculous that it is that it's happening. So Johnny nonetheless manages to hop in the ship, fly off free into space, uh, thanks in part to Sue, who manages to uh, not only let her brother fly free, but manages to serve some classic grade A diss 
upon Reed Richards himself when he says anything that might happen to him there, radiation poisoning, respiratory ailments, don't you care what happens to him? And she says, my poor, poor Reed, I love you so much, but in some way, it's you, not Alicia, who are truly blind. And uh, what's great it's is... It's such a great burn. Yeah. Thing that goes, Alp, no two ways about it. Susie's all through being the shrinking violence on this team. Yes, although we should say, and this is kind of crucial, he also says, which means that if we don't see it and make a few changes around here, there ain't going to be no more team. And one of the things that's kind of great is, again, this is, uh, this is uh, although it seems it is a classic Marvel melodrama, it is also, again, absolutely true. And we see later... That in fact, Reed, in a very weird way, he, Reed does not make changes, and everything that Ben says does in fact come to pass. But meanwhile, we've got a subplot to launch with uh, uh, the Human Torch being captured, uh, trying to enter Adeline, the Savage Land. I don't know why he's shocked that uh, a group that he more or less tried to commit outright genocide on the last time he came to visit uh, is trying to capture him and subdue him. He, of course, assumes that it's because uh, Black Black Bolt's brother, Mad Maximilian, has Maximilian the Mad, rather. Maximus, (laughs) please. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Maximus. Boy, I really screwed that up. Jeff apologizes to everyone actually called Maximilian out there. Yeah. He was going for Blackagar Boltagon's brother, <laughs> Maximus the Mad. <laughs> Never miss a chance to say Blackagar Boltagon. It's true. I got hats off to the person who was like, yes, and that's his name. Really? Oh, yeah, no, trust me. Anyway, turns out that Johnny has been captured and subdued by the Inhumans at the behest of Black Bolt himself, which Johnny thinks then... He, too, has turned against the humans of the outer world. But why? Why? Spoilers. He's not actually turned against the humans of the world. He's just turned against Johnny. And, as you'll see very soon, with really good reason. Exactly. Exactly. Which really sums up the Johnny's terrible. But Johnny's terrible. Yeah, come on. Johnny is kind of terrible. Uh, meanwhile, back in the other parts of the non-Inhumans world, you get the uh, the rest of the Fantastic Three sort of sitting around moping, and then Agatha Harkness shows up and says, like, hey, come get rid of your kid. I've got something going on. You know how it is. Exactly. I'm a nanny. I haven't adopted your fucking child. Exactly. You actually pick, pick, pick up de- your child. Pick up your goddamn child, or I'm charging you double. And Reed and Sue, of course, manage to use this as an excuse to fight, and Sue manages to storm out. Uh, and again, Sue is 100% correct, mm-hmm. because Agatha Harkness is like, will you come and get your kids? And Reed goes, nope, I'm going to go to the lab. I've got work to do. I've got work to do. And she says, and naturally that becomes your duties as a husband, let alone a father. And you're right, I never noticed how much Thomas... She's like, well, don't worry, Mr. Fantastic. There's something so great about that. The fact that it's always the emphasis is on the Mr. Don't worry, Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, of course, what, what's Ben going to do but slip on the old uh, size XXXXXL trench coat and hat, slip out the back of the Baxter building, and walk the streets until he's ambushed by people who couldn't have known that he was coming. Because, of course, comics. No, uh, 
no, of, of course they knew he was coming. They were probably following him since he left the Baxter building. Again, that's not in place, but I've just decided to give them that because sure. why not? Yeah. As I told you last time, and I'm telling listeners this time, this scene where he is ambushed by the Frightful Four is half of the comic I read when I was a kid because it was reprinted in the issue of Spider-Man. Uh, and so I have weird nostalgia for what is a very generic fight scene yeah. in which Sandman, Wizard, and Pacepot Pete, a.k.a. the Trapster, fight Ben, are interrupted by Medusa, who at first seems like maybe she's with the Frightful Four, but she's not. She's working with Ben so that we can see the real new member of the Frightful Four, Thundra. Thundra, who we decided last time was Big Barda meets Wonder Woman, meet all of Roy Thomas's fear of women. Oh, meet actually all of John Romita's awesome design tricks, including wrist gauntlets, swashbuckler boots, and that awesome lightning bolt thing up the side that I dig every time. Every time. You but really yeah. do. I I. Do you just like that on anyone? Like anyone has a design up the side of their pants, you're in favor of it? Yeah, probably. I would say that. I, I would say that's probably true. Yeah, I think. I think all you got to do is like put a design up the side of your pants, and I'm like, well, hello. But that's part of like growing up in the '70s. People thought that that was a good idea. I just, I sort of like the fact that that Thundra, like. Uh, as a character who later, you know, is going to be on and off a part of the Fantastic Four for the next foreseeable number of issues, Thundra, I was kind of relieved to see upon revisiting her first appearance here. I, I say revisit. I hadn't read this issue, but I read later issues with Thundra is um, despite Roy Thomas's weird uh, issues with women is kind of a cool character in her you kind really of... like thundra she doesn't really appear that much in, in 129 she's pretty much the the last minute surprise yeah i am a strong woman i have knocked out ben Grimm. who am i and so you see more of her in 130 and in 130 she ends up being a fascinating character mm -hmm. because she has a fairly generic origin mm -hmm. which is i am from planet of powerful woman i have come to find the most powerful man and beat him in combat right but what's interesting is that she goes beyond the sort of man-hating elements of that yeah. Yeah. to the point where she is fiercely protective of men because she is literally a reverse chauvinist. Yes, or a reverse gallant, so to speak. She, she yeah, is she's against... Like, these, yeah. these poor guys cannot handle themselves. What are you doing to them? Yeah. Yeah, you can you cannot beat up a man just because he's passed out because he's the weaker sex. She will actually turn around and fuck with the frightful force plans in part because and, and there is something sort of great, as I said, like there's a little bit here that doesn't really go on to pay off. But essentially, at one point after Ben Grimm has been knocked out and then in a scene that I actually really like on page two, uh, Thundra basically picks up. Ben Grimm and says, strange, even though I sought this man out to defeat him, to humble him as never before, I see now what I overlooked in the heat of battle. There is something in his craggy face, something inherently noble, which makes me doubt my mission here as if, and basically Sandman goes, oh no, you don't girly. And basically picks up Ben Grimm and hurls him away and says, I can always tell when a dame's starting to go soft on me. It's not going to happen again if I have to splatter this creep all over Manhattan. So basically, the Sandman ends up 
uh, turning Thundra against the Frightful Four, more or less because he can see a romantic subplot that, much like Graham, he has no interest in seeing develop at all. Uh, but I kind of like the idea that, that we're teasing here that Ben Grimm would be actually kind of fun to put in the middle of a romantic triangle, especially if one of those people is the most powerful woman in the world and, uh, you know, Alicia Masters, who is pretty much the exact opposite of that in pretty much every way possible. So I was like, oh, this could be fun, which I have to say, if there's ever an epitaph for this set of issues is the, oh, this could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, because there's so much potential in actually almost every of these, every one of these stories. Yeah. That it doesn't reach, but you there's almost a goodwill to get you through, because you're like, oh, he's trying, bless him. Yeah, he's trying, or it's kind of like, oh, this would have been great. Like, the actual execution is like, oh, no. But I mean, like, there's, there's a whole sequence where we go back to the Inhumans, and the Inhumans... Uh, Johnny Storm like breaks out and he flies away through the, you know, uh, the Forbidden City. And there's like the Inhumans, Triton's flying that wacky sky scooter thing and everyone's zipping around trying to find the Human Torch and he's being chased through the skies. It's exactly the sort of action scene they would have put in the Inhumans movie if they hadn't pulled it from their Phase 3 Marvel development schedule just the other day. But... You know, it seems like it could be cool, but uh, particularly if given a, a two-hour movie that, you know, let's face it, they really didn't need to make, as clearly they themselves, Marvel, realized eventually before yanking that movie right off their goddamn Phase 3 cinematic schedule. But it is a sort of interesting couple of pages where they're trying to hunt down the Human Torch, and he ends up outwitting everyone by jumping inside Crystal's tower and burning his way up through the center step by painful step until he comes face to face with a tearful crystal who's like, I, I'll stand aside so you can see, see more clearly what's behind me. Now can you see, Johnny? Now can you? And of course, you get a great shot of Johnny Storm's shocked and horrified face, which we won't find out why he's shocked and horrified until next issue when uh, special guest artist Ross Andrew will be drawing this without this set of references and everything will look amazingly different. Yes, for example, Crystal might actually entirely change outfits in between <laughs> issues, even though it picks up immediately afterwards. But before we get there... People, yes! We have to uh, get through the end of this issue. The plot of the the rest of this issue is that having captured both Medusa and the thing, the Frightful Four invades the Baxter building. We're now finally through the parts where how do they get into the Baxter building? Because apparently these days anyone can just walk into the fucking Baxter building. They, with the exception of one great full page splash where John Buscema is like, I'm really going to try and do the Kirby machinery thing. And I love that splash page. Do you? I really do. Because again, it's Buscema showing how he is not Kirby. Okay, yeah. Because he's very not Kirby. But I love the attempt. Uh, I think in large part because I love Sinnott's inks. I love Sinnott's machinery. Yeah. Sinnott inking someone's machinery gives you that weird feeling. But again, I wonder how much of it is kind of weird ersatz nostalgia. Because I have to say, if ever there's a page that looks like it is going to end up in a uh, Marvel coloring book, it is that page. <laughs> it's that one, right? Yeah, it really it's, is. Uh, so 100% is. correct. Yeah. So. Um, a- anyway, they, they break in. They turn on Reed. Reed is kind of in trouble. Yeah. Eh, 
But then the invisible girl shows up and she's got Franklin because remember, that's where she went. Go and get Franklin. As the Fantastic Four save the day, kind of, um, A, Franklin shows that he has superpowers for the first time because he wakes Ben up while Ben is comatose. Mm-hmm. B, Reed and Sue fight over the fact that Sue is not defending Franklin and leaving, but instead mm-hmm. helping save his ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and see, Medusa shows that she is kind of awesome, helps mm-hmm. everyone out, and doesn't really get involved with the soap opera, which I very much adore. Yes. We should also talk about, I think, I, I don't want to rush you, but I do hope you're going to talk about the last page of this comic. Yeah. it's So the short version is the Frightful Four are defeated. They run away. Thundra is kind of left not entirely on board with being a member of the Frightful Four. That's but right. she leaves with them nonetheless. That's going to pay off in a couple of issues. But Sue and Reed have a final showdown. Mm-hmm. And I mean final showdown because as part of their argument, the two of them are just stubborn dicks. And they break up. She leaves the team and she leaves Reed. That's right. Uh, and Reed is... Reed is Reed. Let's be perfectly honest. Reed is exactly as he has been up to this point and says, don't talk to dead lady. If you're going to go, then go. What is lovely is that is then followed by a panel of the two of them looking back at each other, clearly upset with Thomas doing some incredibly purple prose, but it totally works. The words have been bitter, the accent's harsh. Still, there is no anger now in the faces of these two who move slowly, haltingly away from each other. There is only something indescribably sad. Yet, move apart they do. And this is where you're like, was Thomas getting divorced right now? Yes, exactly. Like, was he actually in the middle of a breakup when he's writing this? Because there's something genuine about that moment of non-melodrama mm-hmm. in the middle of it of, of of them being fallible people yeah of them being of living up to the the marvel promise of these guys are just like us yes real people <laughs> with real emotions and being in emotionally real situations that we recognize and also dealing with them terribly yeah yes and immediately regretting it but also not being able to take it back yeah there's something very real about all of that mm-hmm you know that that I I that I love I, that I downright I adore that that page mm-hmm. in particular, especially because it goes from that lovely panel to just three panels later, Reed grimacing at the reader <laughs> and saying we're going to find Johnny Starr and persuade him to come back at least, and then with or without an invisible girl, no matter what happens, the Fantastic Four will go on. Right. Which is, again, a kind of strange and and sort of clever note, because how many times have we seen, you know, Stan Lee take a a situation not nearly that strong, you know, and being like, this is it. This is the end of the Fantastic Four. Oh, totally. He'd be like, you know, one of us has gone out for pizza and they've not come back. Is this the end of the Fantastic Four? Exactly. Whereas you've actually seen Mm -hmm. Reed and Sue split up. On panel, mm-hmm. and and you, we've had a Fantastic Four without Sue before, of course, mm-hmm. when she was pregnant. Yeah, but there was even then there was the idea that like she was coming back, right? You know, she was part of the book. You've seen her just outright leave. 
Mm-hmm. And so for Thomas to pivot from that to, oh, the team's not done. Yeah. Is, if nothing else, wonderfully aware of the reader's intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's kind of, it is kind of a shame. I should point out also that the, that, the end of 130 means that it is the end of the world's greatest comix magazine, C-O-M-I-X magazine, which uh, replaced the world's greatest comic magazine as of 126. And then as of 131, we are back to the world's greatest comic magazine. Uh, and uh, yeah, Graham, I we should talk about this two-part little arc. Um 131 is called Revolt in Paradise, and 132 is called, oh, I don't know, something about Omega, I'm sure. Uh, Omega! Exclamation point! The ultimate enemy! <laughs> exclamation point! <laughs> exactly. Uh, Russ Andrew pencils 131, and as you said before, clearly someone did not give him the right reference, mm-hmm. because Crystal is suddenly no longer dressed in the Fantastic Four outfit she was in previously, which is... A bit of a giveaway yes. about what is going to happen in the storyline. Uh, but we do discover that the thing that she could not let Johnny see mm-hmm. was that she is in old school parlance making time with Quicksilver. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I mentioned to Graham very quickly, for what it's worth, 131 and 132 are genuinely the first issues of the Fantastic Four that I had as a kid and um, which means that I bought them when they came out in 1973 when I was all of seven years old. And unfortunately uh, mm, uh, this comic led me to believe that this is how grown up adults are supposed to behave, which is why I'm still a wreck to this day. But uh, uh, I have Wait, to say, this, this, this isn't how grown ups. <laughs> you're like what damn it Graham how many times have I told you that it's not now come over here so I can throw a punch and or launch my superpowers at you <laughs> so uh, if only we had the special effects for the power records yeah oh man that stuff's great Ross Andrew Joe Sinnott inking Ross Andrew is very interesting I of course am a enormous Ross Andrew fan because of I think his beautiful work on amazing spider-man here it's fascinating seeing how far he has a style that is dynamic that is not in any way uh kirby-ish and how strange that sort of makes the book look nonetheless oh, it's, it's it's not a good match it's yeah i, I feel that it's and it really takes the edge off andrew here and it, it's 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 not a good match i i want to say just before we get into this properly though um we we didn't talk about Sam has really shifted as an artist in the earlier issues. He's he's moved away from his super tight, you know, nine panel grids. Yes, he's with his, with Thomas coming on and Thomas writing. Let's be honest, more leisurely stories. Oh, that's a good point. Yes, he, he's he's been able to breathe as an artist, and the issues look much better than they have done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, visually, the book is stronger than it's been. Yeah, since Kirby left, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, which kind of makes Andrew coming on and having an off issue that bit more noticeable. Yeah, it really does stand out, doesn't it? It's it's very strange, um, you know. And for for people who, there's just something so great. There's a scene here with Maximus the Mad. 
because they suspect that Maximus is the reason why. Oh, wait, uh, am I really going to go on with this whole thing? I'm trying to figure out, like, basically, <laughs> I'm like, we should summarize the plot. But I'm like, I, I remember on the first incarnation, I did such a good job of it. And this time I can barely be bothered to finish my sentences. Okay. I will summarize the oh, plot. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Here's the really short version. There are two strains to this two-parter. Yeah. One is, will Crystal and Johnny work it out? Spoilers, they won't. Two is the Alpha Primitives, who are, you may or may not remember, the slave race of the Inhumans, mm-hmm. start rebelling. They do not only rebel, they end up having a defender called Omega. Because Alpha Omega, that's the way these things work. Omega is a giant who is amazingly powerful and can withstand attacks from the Inhumans. In fact, the more the Inhumans fight him in the Alpha Primitives, the stronger he gets. Spoilers, Omega is powered by the guilt the Inhumans feel over having a slave race. That's right. And has been generated by a machine created by Maximus. The Fantastic Four do shit in these two issues, but really, they are almost entirely peripheral to the story. Yeah, again, this is one of those cases where it's like, I don't know if Thomas was just in a big hurry or did not give two toots. But I, essentially, in the six issues that he has, and he had hyped himself as coming back and bringing big, big changes to the Fantastic Four. So I think it's, to me, I think the suspicion is is that he'd originally intended his run to be much longer and just unfortunately, with all the other responsibilities, because he's more or less taken over as editor-in-chief as Stanley goes on to become publisher emeritus, I think, or however the term is said, pronounced, or mispronounced in my case. Uh, you have you have a story about the Inhumans uh, and the FF that is all about sort of the same way that you have... Uh, Thomas's earlier FF villain issue about Rudyardia being a way in which he's tackling racism. This is a big, big inhuman story with the inhumans and the alpha primitives at war. And what you find is, is what's really, you get a very uh, bombastic sort of speech made by Crystal about Alpha and his powers of racial hatred, the power of racial hatred, essentially, and and white guilt, guilt uh, in the sense of culpability and responsibility. It's some pretty powerful shit to be dropped into a comic. And yet, arguably, um, I think Graham, even more than me, feels that this shit really doesn't land, you know? Um, it's uh, it feels very much like Thomas is trying to make a point. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, so Tom, Thomas has his statement, and his statement is, "Get this, people. Slavery is bad." Mm-hmm. But there's nothing beyond that. Well, and, and there's really okay. That's not true. There's some really bad soap opera beyond that. There, there, and yes. coming off of the previous issue, where Thomas showed that he could have a surprising amount of subtlety. Yeah, in his character work, the the conflict between Johnny and Crystal is astonishingly unrealistic, flat, and melodramatic. Well, and so, also, yeah, you again have, shall we just say, old fashioned ideas of male female relationships? Because Johnny pretty much is like, "You're my girl." 
Yes. Well, uh, there's two things that I sort of want to drop in here because there is one thing that I want to point out. One of the things that's rough is is that Thomas, sort of in the way that Thomas wants, to, knows what what he should say and what he should feel with male-female relationships, Sue being absolutely right in the things that she's saying to read, and yet presented just so horribly, you have an issue in which... Um, this storyline in which Thomas is trying to make a big point about not just racial hatred, but kind of about in arguably all class structures, you know, and yet you have in the, in the previous issue in issue 131, when the fight scene breaks out with the inhumans kicking everyone's butt, uh, there's a panel that that shows Triton like punching three guys at once, and the captions reads like, "Till even sea spawn Triton proves that noble blood and warrior training will out." Now, warrior training is one thing, but noble blood is kind of the same way that Star Wars has this kind of uh, inherent fucked up view of like the Jedi and. Uh, of uh, essentially a, a warrior race that's inherently better than everyone else in the galaxy because of the way, what they're born with, I suppose. Yeah, because There's, that's the way it is. Yeah, this a very inherent narrative to white dude Western genre fiction for hundreds of years is the idea that some people end up being heroes and have to be heroes because they're inherently better than other people. And it is tied to this concept of quote unquote noble blood, which again runs through all of Edgar Rice Burroughs and just rampant all throughout genre fiction. You have Thomas trying to make a point about the class inequality being nothing but destructive, whereas at the same time, he's blindly parodying the ideas that get you into that mess in the first place. The idea of noble blood race. and, yeah, you, you know, race-based exceptionalism. So, you know, it, it it's, again, I, I think there's another thing. I think the Johnny Crystal thing is a huge mess, how it's handled in both these issues. But, I mean, let's face it. It's never like they were a particularly convincing couple in a way. You know well, it, what I mean? well, it's true. Like, Johnny and Crystal have always had their melodrama dial all the mm. way to a lip. Yeah. They have, they have never been a couple that seems to be, you know, we can just hang out and do nothing. You know, the closest you get to that are, again, Kirby could get that. But Kirby did it in the way that he drew them. And actually, I want to say, isn't there like a panel or two with John Romita? But I, I really remember Kirby there, drawing... There's, there's John Romita panel where they are out getting a hot dog. Yes. We both, we both loved that opening. Yes, exactly. That was wonderful. And there was also some similar stuff with Kirby drawing them, both out on the streets and also sort of... Um, laughing at Ben Grimm's hijinks in the Baxter building, where it was kind of like, kind of like, oh, this is a young couple in love, and you really believe it. But the fact is, one of the things that's interesting, I think you and I talked in our previous incarnation of this, that the Quicksilver Crystal love story, which is so dashed off and absolutely has somehow 
is even less believable than the Johnny Storm Crystal relationship in the first place that it supersedes, you know, is built at best around the narrative of the wounded soldier and the nurse who nurses him back to health and they fall in love. That's about all that it has going for it. But there is kind of this thing like, I don't know, it's it's not really that important to talk about because but there's not a lot of there there with Crystal. You know what I mean? Like there I don't think there ever was. There's not here. And I don't know. I mean, we'll I, see. I'm not sure. Comes I'm back. not sure there ever is. Exactly. I don't think there ever is. I always feel that that Crystal has always been the underdeveloped plot device with boobs. You know, and it's just it's it's kind of a shame, but it is kind of interesting seeing as you talk about like Thomas's sort of discomfort and inability to sort of handle some of these things. One of the things that is great that we see both in this episode, though, and in the previous issue you had with Sue, you had Sue Medusa and Thundra. In, in that Frightful Four issue, and they're all written a little bit differently, which is great. And one of the things that did surprise me is in this issue, uh, you basically have Medusa being like, hey, you know what? I'm going to join the Fantastic Four. Uh, you guys need me. I'm a good replacement. And one of the things that's great is she has a very strangely sort of... Um, what was the word that we used in the previous incarnation? Do you Do you remember... It wasn't, it, it, there was a certain... She was oddly detached and amused by everything. Yeah, amused, but she had, there was a certain dignity to the character, a certain quiet detachment and dignity that that I didn't associate with the character before, where she's sort of quietly amused by everything. And it really works. And it's also kind of such a relief compared to everybody's melodrama. Uh, we have to talk about, there's, there is the, before we get to the very last issue, we should talk about the, the two crazy epilogues in this comic, because one of the things that's amazing is the whole story with Ultra gets wrapped up and then there's still another five pages of comic left. So yeah, Omega is eventually defeated because they realize that he is, that their guilt animated, and when they realize that, he just stops because apparently that's the way to deal with guilt. Recognize it, and it it goes away. It's fine. Right. Um, but then you get a Lord of the Rings esque series of epilogues that no one really is interested in. Yeah. But as part of that, you discover that the, the Inhumans have a magic machine that will magic you clothes based upon what you're thinking of at the time. Yes. A magic electro weave machine, and it transforms Medusa's outfit into a Fantastic Four version of her own outfit. This is where Johnny Storm is like, "Oh boy, this is great! Let me at the electro weave, and I will change my costume into red and yellow, the colors of the original Human Torch." Uh, and I think something that's kind of strange and important. Uh, this was something that you and I disagreed with. There is a lot being made of, well, what's going to happen when this hits Reed? How is Reed going to change? And Reed's outfit does not change in any way. The the various rips and tears just disappear. And they make a lot. It's a four-panel sequence followed by Ben Grimm being completely amazed that Reed hasn't changed Well, I, I'm not sure all. he's amazed as much as he's the point-of-view character who expresses that it it's nothing has changed. Yeah. I'm not sure if amazed is, is really the right way to, to put it. Yeah, that could be. That could be, because it is one of the few uh, word anything, balloons without an exclamation point. Yeah. yeah. He's disappointed. Yeah. Uh, I am of the opinion 
that it's a setup for a joke about Reed having no imagination. Yes. Uh, both you, of us you were are, not. Well, we were, we were both, of course, somewhat suspicious that that Roy is following with the Stanley dictum that Reed Richards has to be the absolute perfect person, you know, and is the embodiment of all that's awesome in in the world. Uh, but honestly, I do wonder the extent to which, because there is uh, Ben's little um, call out that if. Reed doesn't change, he's going to lose Sue and that the team is going to break up. And the fact of the matter is, is when exposed to this ray, Reed does not change. Reed is not capable of changing. And so it's a weird throwaway moment that I almost feel is meant to be a little uh a little bit of foreboding. It it it, it I think it's supposed to be a bit of an omen. It's and it's it's interesting. It's hard to believe it because every other thing that Thomas is doing generally gets telegraphed, but every once in a while it, it doesn't. And I do wonder the extent to which Thomas is pointing out that reads read is many things, but his ability to change is incredibly limited and it's going to cost him and it's going to cost the team uh, even more than it already has. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. I hope that that's what he was going for with it anyway. So, uh, meanwhile, the new human torch breaks up with the old crystal, which is exciting because it looks like mustard and ketchup are finally breaking up. <laughs> also, let's be honest. Johnny comes across as an amazing douche. Yes. Yeah. And I think I, I still cannot work out if he's meant to mm -hmm. or if he's meant to be shielding his pain like a man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really have no idea. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. And uh, I would like to say we find out in the next issue, 133, but we don't. We we really, instead, we get the return of Thundra, the battle of the century, and um, an amazing change in the uh, creative team, wouldn't you say, Graham? Uh, we get, A, Roy Thomas only plots it. He does not script it. Scripting is Jerry Conway in Jerry Conway's first issue. The Thomas era is over, everyone. Before it, it ended even really began. with a squib. Yeah, he did he did seven issues. Yeah. And it it was it was an interesting seven issues. It really is a, it's a it's an era that is marked by he means well and he's so close. He's he has a lot that he wants to tackle and he does indeed manage to get uh, ketchup and mustard to break up with each other. Uh, you didn't mention that. <laughs> oh, Ram I'm not finished. Ramona Fraden is yes, the best penciler. Ra Ramona Fraden, everyone, who is amazing. Yes, I think we can all agree that Ramona Fraden is the best. Absolutely. Uh, here's the thing: she's not the best under Josina Sinks. No, no, I got to admit that that is that is another match where she actually manages to make poor old Ross Andrew look a little bit better. Because uh, so. Uh, I do want to mention, though, that the, the so the opening scene takes place on New Year's Eve uh, in um, uh, Times Square. And what's great is you get to see the very dejected new Fantastic Four um, standing underneath the uh, electro ticker tape of the Ace Chemical building or whoever the fuck they are, where it's spilling across the phrase growing families, which is so on the nose. I can't help but adore it in part because if only the rest of the issue were that subtle. <laughs> 
you know? So <laughs> there's such a lost opportunity. Yeah, it's uh it's this is actually a disappointing issue because we both came out of the Frightful Four two parter with a, a, an affection of sorts for Thunder. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, she, she's a more me. complex character than initially seems to mm-hmm. be the case. And her immediate uh, defense mm-hmm. of men mm-hmm. uh, who are not the thing was, was kind of charming. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that this issue, which is uh, Thunder's return mm-hmm. and Thunder challenges the thing to a, a, a one-on-one showdown to finally prove who is the mightiest... There's a lot of potential, and none of that potential is reached. Yeah, it's it's a shame. It, it, it kind of pisses away the potential of Thunder in the process. I think it it's this issue in a lot of ways is being played like again, sort of. Uh, excuse me. Uh, this the, sort of the same way that Thomas is doing. You know, this is this is a Marvel comic that is being crafted by people who grew up reading Marvel comics. So. There's some great little bits of goofiness, including an absolutely pointless cameo by Luke Cage. Unless you're a believer in long-term foreshadowing, which I personally am not in this case, you get a shot of the Hulk sitting in a cave trying to read a newspaper where the the fight of the century between the Thing and Thunder has been announced. And Hulk says, Hulk doesn't understand. Pictures say fight. White girl want to hit rock thing. Make Hulk's head hurt. Fight dumb. Everyone dumb. That's and in this issue, everyone is. Everyone's dumb. pretty dumb, oh, and let's face right. it, the fight is dumb too. So you get you get uh, basically the stadium in Queens gets cleaned up by Ben Grimm so that everyone can show up uh, to basically watch him fight Thundra and more or less get thrown out of the stadium in like two pages, just so that you can have people be like ten bucks a seat. What a rook, you know, which let's face it, I do kind of dig apart from the fact that like Ben and uh, Thundra uh, end up like punching each other out atop the um, this, this, the relic of the 1964 World's Fair. Um, it's it is kind of I do love a little bit how one of the things that's great about the Bronze Age of Marvel Comics is people who wanted to write for Marvel Comics, had to come to New York to write Marvel Comics uh, or create the, create Marvel Comics. And so consequently, this is one of those books where one of the things that people realize about Marvel is, is that New York is in its own way as much a character as the superheroes are. And that's probably the best thing I can really say about the issue because honestly, the rest of it with Thundra and the things punching each other around until Ben and uh, until Reed and Medusa fire off their special plot hammering device that ends the fight. It's, it's a real dash off throwaway issue. It really is. And there, there's, there's so much more that could have been done. So uh, much more, you know, yeah. th- having the fantastic four be so amazingly down mm-hmm. at, at the start of the issue for a good reason. I mean, yeah. Johnny has lost crystal Reed has lost Sue. And his his son, yeah. Um, you know they, they have had they're they're seeing nineteen seventy three in in a really kind of terrible way, yeah. Um, for them to be like, okay, but but someone's just challenged Ben. Let's get our asses in gear. 
it feels like all of the the interesting stuff is very quickly introduced and then dismissed yeah. in favor of a super generic storyline that goes nowhere. Because as you said, Medusa and Reed are like, we turned Ben human again, and uh, Thunder is disinterested in fighting him. Yeah. Well, the even, end. even for a fight, a fight of the century story, there is maybe five pages of fighting in it, which is fine. It's just there's not really anything, any anything else. You know, it's it's just it's a it's a weird, badly paced comic. Uh, Ramona Fraden, inked by Joe Sinnott, gives you the feeling that you're reading an issue of Spidey Super Stories where Spidey never shows up. You know? Yeah, it's a it's a very the the Ramona Frieden is a great artist, and one of the things that I really like about her art is it seems effortless and it seems yes. very quick to read, mm-hmm. but Sinnott overworks it. Yeah, and so what actually comes across is you notice how Frieden's characters have very weird positioning instead. Yes, right. And, and they they seem overly rendered. It's very very strange. Yeah, yeah, because. Because Frayden is one of those people who, looking at her stuff, she really, she knows, she is one of those people who knows how to design the page. She really does, um, she's so good at creating the kind of uh, diagonals that move your eyes through the page, but also create the tension on the page itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in order to do that, as you point out, sometimes the body postures are weird. Sometimes the, uh, you know, the anatomy just goes off. Uh, and then when you get, when you get Senate rendering it, it, like you said, it's, it manages to become lifeless, but it also really does manage to become, uh, yeah, it just becomes overworked. There's a, there's a lovely little panel where, um, Thundra is like slapping her. She literally gives Sandman just, just slaps him. You know, because he's being such a dick. And uh, the wizard actually jumps in to stop the fighting. Thunderous picks up a 500-pound barbell with one arm and starts benching it. And they're all sort of standing behind her, like, basically plotting and scheming. And the very next panel cuts to is Ben Grimm in the same pose as Thundra, also holding up a 500-pound weight with one hand while Ben, uh, Johnny Storm is talking behind him. And let's face it, it's... That is a very, very elegant bit of comic storytelling. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah. That is just effortless scene shifting, but also does so much to underline who the characters are, their situations, and how much alike and different Thundra's situation and Ben's situations are. Really nice. You, It really would have been great if there had been... Something that that Frayden had had a chance to sink her teeth into, really. But this is this is one of those weirdo incontinuity fill-in issues uh, that just doesn't. It just doesn't. It does. It 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 kind of leaves a bummer. Uh, a bit of a bummer. So, but you know, we'll have more Thundra later. Um, we'll have a lot. Well, more that's just it. Like Th- Thundra is as dismissive as this is of Thundra. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a, a prologue for what the series is going to do for her. Yeah, this the series is is going to stick her, uh, keep her around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in part because although it's not advanced this issue really at all, the romance subplot mm-hmm. is is going to become very important between her and Ben. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it's, I don't know. <sighs> 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 Uh, yeah, so those those are the seven issues. We did we did really speed through them. Yeah, we did. Um, and... we, this this is an unusually short Baxter building, in large part because Jeff and I did this before at length and talked ourselves out. And honestly, because there's not a lot here. Yeah. Uh, Thomas's first seven issues. He does come back to the series later, but Thomas's first seven issues um, are a sort of weird missed opportunity. Yeah, it's. I, I think you're right. I think it's very, very possible that he did intend to stay around for longer, I, in large part because I find it very strange that he would have just left the series with Sue still gone. Yes, that 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 alone seems. Yeah, to me. Huge. Yeah, I think I think he had a lot of places he he wanted to go with it, and it and who knows? We'll see. Definitely, I know that you and I spent some time talking about whether or not he might have actually had things planned out as far as 150 because 150 really takes i feel takes a lot of these threads maybe not the thundra but certainly the 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 reed and sue threads and the um and the stuff with the inhumans brings it all back and sort of ties it up in a way that makes you think like oh okay this is but it it is it's sort of the first step of a of a journey, and yet unfortunately we're never we're never really going to know what that journey was supposed to be because we're going to have other people come in and other uh, other experiences uh, change the Fantastic Four. So, <laughs> oh yes, we are. Yeah, a, a strange batch of issues, but we are now firmly in the period where the FF feels like the product of people who grew up, grew up reading the FF mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, for better and worse, because I do have a lot of nostalgia for these issues. I It feels authentically FF in a way that even the Lee Kirby stuff doesn't. Oh, uh, I, it, it, these are still, I mean, I felt that way at the same, but, you know, I, it was it was kind of rough having to go through and and talk about all these issues again in a way and think about them some more. But it's a lot better than if we'd ended up having to revisit Stanley's Airwalker issues. I think you know for a second time. <laughs> I, I still think that we got off lucky in that regard. Oh man, can you even imagine that would have been very bad. So next time. I believe yes. we had decided that we are going to read issues 134 through 146. That seems like a lot of issues, but if we do it as quickly as we did this badge, we'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be more than fine, ladies don't, and gentlemen. Don't you worry. Yeah. Um, I'm, I have read some of these issues ahead, and there's, there's some stuff ahead of us. Uh, while Thomas reached for the stars and didn't get there, Conway reaches for the what the fuckometer. You know, uh, I know what you're talking there. about. Yeah, can you imagine? Uh, we we got to save it for last time. I, I got to cut you off, Graham, because you're going to spoil people too much. But all all I can say is read those issues and then imagine what it's like being a seven year old and trying to read those issues. Because holy <laughs> smokes, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, we. Let's see. We should we should wrap up, I guess. I think so. Once more for this being a week late and also a little bit shorter than normal. And hopefully you weren't too upset by us rushing through these issues. Yeah. Uh, if nothing else, believe me, 
we 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 made our good points faster than normal. I think we made most of them. There's a few things. Uh, I there's a lot less. If if you're really curious about me and my theories about Roy Thomas and Macbeth, feel free to drop me a line. I'll talk about them. <laughs> we didn't lose much. So uh, yeah, Graham, uh, do you want to do you want to start closing us up? I do. I want to tell all of you that we are uh, available on the internet. We are at waitwhatpodcasts.com where you will find show notes for this episode and all of the Baxter Building and Wait What episodes as well. As well as written posts by Jeff, by myself, and also by Matt Terrell, who is A, far more regular, and B, far smarter than either of us. We are also on Tumblr at waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, which is the place you go to find me posting random pictures from random comics that I happen to be reading at randomly at any moment. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, but there are lots of pictures from comics, people. There are, there are, and, uh, and <laughs> I'm off to this time. Yeah, uh, and and I swear, when this episode goes up, I will be posting uh, the YouTube links to the entire Power Records um, the way it began episode. So because you can actually see the comic and hear the subpar voice acting in one dynamic format. Um, while, again, while I agree that there is a lot of terrible, terrible acting in that, the Ben Grimm is great. Isn't he? He is actually really good. I was, I was going to say that when you had, had mentioned the subpar acting in the, in the mini intro apology, <laughs> one of the things was, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He is actually quite good. He's, he's got it. He is, um, you know, I, I would actually put him up there in the top top three Ben Grimm's because really he doesn't have a lot of competition, I think. So, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. That, yes, there is also, uh, we are on Twitter, wait, at Wait What Podcast. Jeff's on Twitter solo at LazyBastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Uh, we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Baxter Building exists purely because of people like you who are uh, generously and still somewhat disbelievedly to Jeff and I uh, supporting us in what we're doing here. And I thank you very much. Jeff, however, would like to go into more depth. I would, because uh, not only do we thank all 121 patrons who support us on Patreon, but we owe a special thanks to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast. Uh, and we also owe a debt of gratitude to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Um, as Graham said, uh, literally, we would not have the Baxter Building without you fine folks. Uh, but honestly... It means a lot. You guys really um, manage to... You're the wind beneath our wings, is basically what I'm trying to say. So I think that seems fair. Yeah, I think so as well. So uh, I think that's it. Join us in a month, probably a little less than a month since this episode is coming late. Uh, and yeah, uh, we will see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.